the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to that show. Hasn't been funny in years. An SNL podcast. I am your host, Nick DiGilio. I'm a podcaster, comedy writer, and performer, graduate of Second City, a Saturday Night Live expert and historian, and each week we'll look back at everything SNL. The best, the worst, the good, the bad, the classic, the forgotten. We'll talk about full seasons and full casts, behind-the-scenes stories, episodes, sketches, SNL's historical significance, and much, much more. Sometimes I'll have a guest, sometimes I won't, but with every episode I will always prove that that tired cliche that you hear all the time, that show hasn't been funny in years, is absolutely wrong. And today we are going to be concentrating on and focusing on one episode, uh, in specifically, and it is uh, the one time that Rodney Dangerfield hosted Saturday Night Live. The title of this episode is No Respect, That Time Rodney Hosted SNL. This is episode 27 of that show, um, and uh, it, it's, it's weird that Rodney only hosted one time, considering uh, what a comedy god he was. Um, he appeared on the show a total of three times. He hosted the one time, and the episode that we're going to break down, it's a very interesting, um, strange, and kind of um, jaw-droppingly, not offensive, well, kind of, kind of offensive now. Um, how edgy, uh, looking back at this episode, how edgy the material was and, and, and on kind of a consistent level, how, how far this episode went. Um, I, now back, this, this episode, by the way, was, uh, aired on March 8th, 1980. It was season five, episode 13. The musical guest was the Jay Giles Band who uh, just released uh, Freeze Frame and uh, were right on the cusp of being, you know, the biggest they had ever been at that point in their career. And they were great. They were terrific. The the two uh, performances that Jay Giles did were great. But this was Rodney, um, you know, at the height of his stand-up popularity. Um, but, it, but it's interesting because, like, the, the, the content of this uh, show is edgy and it pushes the envelope, and there are things in it that, like, you watch it now, because now, you know, uh, in the current state that we're in, um, everybody is trying to, like, edit comedy from the past or content that might be offensive. And, um, I mean, my personal view on this is leave things alone. Um, if you're offended by something that was recorded at a time when uh, sensibilities were a little bit different and not as sensitive... Um, just leave it, you know, and if you want to put a warning on it and say, hey, there's some stuff in here that might be offensive to people now in 2023 when it wasn't very offensive back in the 70s or 80s or or until last week, whatever. Um, but I am of this thing where you should not go back and censor anything that's ever been recorded in any possible way. Movies, TV, comedy routines, films, any of that stuff. If you go back and start censoring that stuff that was made at a different time when sensibilities were different, then that's just that's not. That's uh, unacceptable. It's censorship, and it should never, ever, ever be okay with anybody. Now, if you watch something or listen to something and it offends your sensibility now, that makes total sense. But know ahead of time, you know, that stuff like, I mean, could you imagine someone censoring Blazing Saddles? No. You know, but now there are people out there like, yeah, I can't watch Blazing Saddles anymore. Like, what are you kidding me? So, you know, uh, I can understand it. But there are things in this episode that we will talk about that are kind of jaw-dropping now. Um, um, some of them don't work. Some of them are shocking. <laughs> uh, and uh, some of them meant well. Some of, the, some of the content meant well. And the satire was there. And it's a pointed satire. But man, the con- you'll, you'll hear some stuff on, uh, as we go through this that's consistently shocking. So the content of this episode was edgy, pushes the envelope, and in some cases... Pretty jaw-dropping, especially now 
in this uh, world that we live in where everybody is very, very sensitive to anything that anybody says, especially if it's edgy or satirical and it might piss somebody off. Um, I'm not a fan of that. But anyway, so this was March 8th, 1980, Season 5, Episode 13. It was an interesting time because this was um, the last season before Lauren took off and before everybody involved from the original show, the writers, the, the remainder of the cast that were still there. And it kind of felt like that. This was late in the season. This was 13 episodes in. There were only seven episodes left. And it felt like this point in season five, it felt kind of over where, you know, Jane Curtin and Garrett Morris and Bill Murray, Lorraine Newman and Gilda Radner, they were the ones, they were kind of the leftovers. Um, you know, at this point, Aykroyd Belushi had left and Chevy Chase had left. And, you know, um, it, it started to feel like they were bringing in other people. Like at this point, Harry Shearer, was a regular cast member. I mean, the main cast. Here's the, the main cast. Jane Curtin, Garrett Morris, Bill Murray, Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner, and Harry Shearer. And then the featured players were, we had a couple of brothers of, of big stars. Uh, Peter Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's brother, was a featured player. Brian Doyle Murray was a featured player. Don Novello, who would specifically only play Guido Sarducci. He would only play Father Guido Sarducci. But he was a cast member. And Paul Schaefer was also a featured cast member. So this is at a time when they were like bringing musical people in. They were bringing, you know, Guido, Father Guido Sarducci. He was a character that Don Novello did. He was now a cast member and they were featured cast members. So bringing in younger brothers like Peter, uh, well, in the case of Brian Delmer, older brothers, uh, and bringing them in to round out the cast of Leftovers and bringing in Harry Shearer as a ringer. So it was a weird time. Uh, Lorne was, at this point, they were, they, you know, they had seen it all. They had done it all. Five season in. Um, Aykroyd and Belushi at this point were mega stars, especially Belushi. Um, and, you know, uh, they, they had other things happening, like Bill Murray was starting to make movies. Gilda Radner was doing a one-woman show. She's doing a one-woman show on Broadway. Um, and, and everything was happening for the, for the cast. And it, it just seemed like this was it. This was the end. They knew it. So 13 episodes in to this final season, this happens. Um, uh, and it's, an, it's, it's interesting to see the dynamics, to feel the vibe, to know that the quote-unquote leftovers of the cast were like, look, shit, this is our last season. We're done. Lauren, behind the scenes, look, this is my last season. I'm done after this. So, of course, Lauren would return five seasons later, but, of course, at that time, they didn't know. So all of the regulars, the ones who established the show, who made it, who made it uh, what it was, they were all leaving. And you felt that in the air. Watching this episode, you can feel it. Watching the later episodes of season five, and almost all of season five, in fact, it felt like, man, this is it. It's rolling along. We'll bring in a bunch of ringers as hosts towards the end uh, and some celebrity cameos. Um, but, man, this is clearly, this is it, man. This is the last of it. So, And that's how it, uh, that's how it kind of feels. It's interesting because there is no mention of Rodney in the SNL book. And the SNL book I'm referring to is called Live from New York, The Complete Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live, uh, as told by its writers, stars, and guests. Tom Shales, James Andrew Miller wrote it, and it's the Bible uh, of, of, of SNL books. If you don't have that book, you should, because it's, it's the best book ever written about, it, about SNL, and a lot of books have been written about SNL. Um, but it's interesting that there is no mention of Rodney Dangerfield in the book except for one quote from Rodney. So they don't talk about the time he hosted and, which would be the, what we're going to be talking about, March 8th, 1980. But he did appear on the show two other times. He appeared in April, 7, April 7th, 1979, season four, episode 16. So um, about a year earlier, he made a quick cameo, did some bits. Richard Benjamin was the host, and Ricky Lee Jones. Remember Ricky Lee Jones? Chuckies and loves. She was the musical guest, and Richard Benjamin was the host. So he made a, a, a small appearance there. And then later on, he would make an appearance on Weekend Update uh, doing Rodney stuff. And this was in uh, November, November 23rd, 1996. That's season 22, episode 7. The great Phil Hartman came back to host. That was his second and last time hosting. Um, so Phil Hartman was your host and Bush was the musical guest. God, I love going back and looking at these, especially the musical guests, to see, uh, to really cement <laughs> the period of time that we're talking about. Because this is 1996 and, of course, Bush was the musical guest. So, uh, again, he made an appearance on Update, Rodney did, and he was uh, doing Rodney stuff, and they were kind of promoting Meet Wally Sparks, which was a kind of a comeback movie uh, that was, you know, patterned a little bit after the kind of stuff that he did in Caddyshack and Easy Money and all the other stuff that he did. Um, and it was, an, it was an effort to get more interest in Rodney. At that point, he had, people had fallen off. He had, 
had some issues with drugs. He wasn't seen as much. He was doing a lot of cameos on sitcoms and on TV and every once in a while. But his big movie stuff had been done by that point. So he showed up on Weekend Update in November of 96 to plug week, uh, to plug Meet Wally Sparks. So um, before the episode we're talking about, he appeared once before this episode and then once after the episode in 1996. So Rodney only appeared on, on Saturday Night Live three times. He only hosted once, which seems weird considering what a comedy icon the guy was and considering the kind of relationship that he had with ex-cast members and people that he's worked with that are connected to SNL. So two appearances, two small appearances, uh, and then only one time hosting, and that's what we'll be talking about. And there's only one mention of Rodney in the book, in the entire book. And, uh, and the book is, I don't know, the book is about 800 pages, and there is one quote from Rodney. Not, no, and no place else is he mentioned. Yeah, so the two, uh, the two appearances he made and the one time he hosted, this is the only time that Rodney Dangerfield is mentioned, and it's in the section when they're talking about drugs. And Rodney is quoted as saying, I never saw anybody doing hard drugs. Pot, sure. Put it this way. I've been smoking pot my whole life. I found out, uh, I find it tremendously relaxing. Uh, I did do it a lot. And the doctor told me, don't smoke cigarettes, just smoke pot. That's it. That's the only time you hear from Rodney Dangerfield, (laughs) comedy legend, comedy god, in an 800-page-plus book about Saturday Night Live. So that's the only time you ever hear from him. So, (laughs) <laughs> Two cameo appearances, one time hosting. Let's go through the show. Um, and uh, again, March 8th, 1980, season five, episode 13. Uh, the cold open um, would be a takeoff on the uh, no respect thing. Now, at this point in Rodney's career, he was, I mean, considered one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time in 1980. Um, he was a great stand-up. He was doing, he had a comedy club. He was doing a lot of uh, work showcasing younger comedians. Uh, He was a legend by this point. By 1980, he was already a legend. Now, this is pre-Caddyshack. So this was before his first movie, before he made Caddyshack. But at this point, still a legend. Um, He'd been around forever. Uh, He was doing commercials at the time. I got no respect. He was doing commercials for the no respect thing. Uh, He was known for eh, partying, doing a lot of drugs, sleeping with a lot of women, um, and his show was, you know, obviously the bits were about no respect. He was how ugly he was, how, you know, he's got wife and kids and they hate him and blah, blah, blah. But the one thing television wise that he was best known for were all of his appearances on the tonight show with Johnny Carson. Now his appearances up until that point, even after his appearances on the tonight show are legendary. They are great. Rodney Dangerfield never did not kill when he was on the tonight show. I'm not kidding. And if you go back and look at every appearance, every single appearance that Rodney Dangerfield made on The Tonight Show, specifically with Johnny Carson, and he was on dozens of times, he killed every single time. He never bombed. His jokes never fell flat. He would work his ass off doing his sets for Johnny Carson's show uh, to make sure that the six or seven minutes that he was allowed on there, you know, he would do like five, six minutes standing up and then they would bring him over to the couch. Johnny would bring him over to the couch and he would essentially just do another five minutes sitting on the couch. So he would do an official five minutes standing, you know, doing it like a stand up comedian. And then the interview, quote unquote, interview part of the <laughs> of the of the of the parent of the appearance would also just be five more minutes of shtick and stand up that Rodney would do. And every single appearance was gold. So that's what he was known for, and this was right before Caddyshack. Caddyshack came out in June, or I'm sorry, July of 1980. This was March of 1980, so this was right before Caddyshack came out. So Bill Murray and Rodney Dangerfield had already finished. They had worked on Caddyshack together, so they had a working relationship. Um, And they had worked on Caddyshack, um, waiting for that to come out. So... At this point, Rodney's a legend. He's a Tonight Show god. He's doing commercials. He's got stand-up comedy records. He's got the catchphrase. And Caddyshack was what put him completely into the stratosphere. At this point, really hipster kind of comedy. People knew exactly who he was. And people who watched The Tonight Show knew he was a stand-up. And and the whole no respect thing. So the cold open at the very beginning is Rodney's in his dressing room. He's going over the script. And Father Guido Sarducci comes in, Don Novello. And by this point, Father Guido Sarducci kind of worn out his welcome, as far as I was concerned, especially in this, uh, in this season five, because, you know, Novello was on every single episode. He would play other characters every once in a while, but for the most part, he was just Father Guido Sarducci. And it got to the point where it's like, let's plug Sarducci in here and have him do the Father Guido Sarducci shtick. And they do that twice, big time, in this episode. So he comes into Rodney's uh, dressing room, 
and uh, and and said, "Hey, we have to share a dressing room." And so uh, Rodney's like, "Oh, okay, you share the dressing room." Oh. And so they share the dressing room, and and then a whole group of Italian tourists come in. And they come in, and basically everybody is imposing on Rodney in his dressing room. In other words, the whole sketch where everybody is crowding into his dressing room is about no respect. So that's how they set it up. And Rodney is a little bit uncomfortable, you can tell. Um, you know, he's from the stand-up world. He's, he's relying a lot on the cue cards. He looks uncomfortable. He doesn't kind of know what camera to look in. And meanwhile, uh, the whole bit about Guido Sarducci bringing in the Italians is not really very funny. Jane Curtin comes in at the end. But it's basically about we're all going to invade Rodney's dressing room and give him no respect. So that's your cold open. Then the monologue comes up. And the monologue is essentially kind of a greatest hits uh, joke fest. Uh, so Rodney comes out. He's got the red tie. He's tugging at his, you know, he's tugging at his neck. He's tugging at his collar. He's, he's got the handkerchief where he's dabbing the sweat off of himself. And he's basically doing the great killer Rodney monologue. And his monologue is fantastic. And it leads up to a weird thing about him wanting to get the okay sign from the audience. He's always wanted that. And working on a farm. But the first part of it is gold. And this the monologue is great. It's Rodney being Rodney. So here's a little bit. Of, uh, of this monologue um, from uh, March 8th, 1980. This is uh, Rodney, only time hosting. Here's a bit of his monologue, and this is just classic Rodney. Okay. Uh, I tell you, I'm all, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? <laughs> I mean, last week I looked up my family tree, I found out I'm the sap. <laughs> I tell you, I can't relax, you know? Uh, the other night I was in a place I felt like having a few drinks. Someone ordered a bartender, I said, surprise me. He showed me a naked picture of my wife. Oh, <laughs> uh, yesterday was a beauty too, yesterday. I asked a cab driver, where can I get some action? He took me to my house. <laughs> uh, I tell you, nothing goes right, you know. My sex life is nothing. My wife cut me out to once a month. Cut me down to once a month. Oh, I'm lucky, two guys I know she cut out completely. <laughs> Hey, my wife never went for him. Not a sexy guy. I know I'm not sexy. Well, this morning when I put on my underwear, I could hear the Fudaloom guys giggling. <laughs> hey, you kid, I know I'm ugly. I stuck my head out the window, got arrested for mooning. <laughs> I was an ugly kid, too. I had plenty of pimples. One day I fell asleep in the library. I woke up, a blind man was reading my face. <laughs> I went through plenty with the first time I hitchhiked I got beat up. I used the wrong finger. <laughs> well, that's a story of my life. No respect. I don't get no respect at all. <laughs> I don't get no respect from anyone. Well, last Christmas, my kid wanted a BB gun. I gave him a BB gun. He gave me a sweatshirt with a bullseye in the back. <laughs> Real smart kid I got. The other day I told him about the birds and the bees. He told me about my wife and a butcher. <laughs> I tell you, my kid, he drives me nuts. Well, he put crazy glue in my preparation H. <laughs> my daughter, she's no bargain either. In public school, she was voted most likely to conceive. <laughs> That's the trouble with kids today, play around too young. Who they play around young? Well, today they got birth control pills shaped like Fred Flintstone. <laughs> now, you talk to some kids, they're afraid to have sex, they're scared. Ooh, the first time I had sex, I was scared. I was so scared, you know? I was all alone. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's tough to be funny when you're coming off drugs, you know that? <laughs> Now, I tried marijuana just once, that's all, just once. I didn't know what I was doing, I was on cocaine. <laughs> and show business, that's tough too, show business. You kidding? What a racket. You don't know what you go through in show business, show business, you know? And then sometimes, you know, sometimes I think back of all the women I had to sleep with to get where I got, you know? All right, so that, I mean, come on now, that's classic Rodney. Um, I mean, that's just like killing Rodney. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, that's Rodney. And he, by the way, that's the only time he looks, uh, well, as comfortable as Rodney can look. But this was the, this was when he was in his element. This was like, uh, you know, the six minutes of this entire show 
where he was the most comfortable, where he was clearly in his element, where he wasn't looking at cue cards, when he wasn't stuck in strange sketches that that were either weird or just didn't really work. And like, you know, live sketch comedy, that wasn't really his thing. Rodney was a sketch, was a, was a stand-up comedian. And when he made Caddyshack, there are great stories that um, Harold Ramis told about, you know, the first time that Rodney walked on a set to do his scenes. And he's so great, as you know, he's unbelievable in Caddyshack. I mean, he's unbelievably funny in it, as is everybody. Um, but when he came on and they would do a take, uh, Rodney would wait for laughter. And he'd be like, well, I'll tell you, why aren't they laughing? And, and uh, like Harold Ramis tells these great stories about like when he first started shooting scenes in, for Caddyshack, Rodney would wait for laughter. And then when he wouldn't get it, he'd get upset and getting sad. You know, like, say, you know, like, you know, Harold Ramis would call cut and then Rodney would be like, oh, that was terrible. Let's do it again. Nobody laughed. And Harold Ramis had to explain to him. He'd never made a movie before. And Harold Ramis had to explain to him, no, we can't laugh, Rodney. It'll ruin the take. He's like, what do you mean? Huh? And so like he was all upset. Because he didn't understand the process of making movies. He, all he knew was stand-up. And he knew he could go on TV or he can do a nightclub and he could walk up there and he could do 10, 15 minutes of this incredible material with all these incredibly funny jokes and get laughs immediately. And when he wasn't getting laughs on the set of Caddyshack, he was worried. Like, oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I'll never make another movie. And so Harold Ramis had to talk him and explain to him how, you know, movies worked. And at this point, he had just shot Caddyshack and he was still kind of at this point in March of 1980, Caddyshack was done filming. It was just being edited. And so he knew, you know, what sketch comedy was. He knew how to be another character or a variant of his character. Um, and yet, the only time he's very comfortable during this entire episode is when he did that monologue. All right, so after the monologue, okay, now here is the first sketch that caused my jaw to drop when reviewing this again, when watching it again. Now, I hadn't watched this episode in uh, several years. Um, before, you know, uh, prepping for this, for this episode of the podcast. And there were several times, as you'll, as you'll hear, uh, where there was material in, in this episode where I went, oh, my God, like how far they've gone with it. Here's the first one. This is right out of the monologue. It's a fake commercial. Um, a lot of people probably know that we have had many uh, internet, or uh, not internet, I'm sorry, investment opportunity commercials uh, whether it be for stamps or collectibles or collectible this or collectible that. And gold coins are still, you know, being advertised on late night television and still everywhere. You know, you've got to get your presidential gold coin. You've got to get a gold coin commemorating this or a collectible coin commemorating a space mission or kind of commemorating, you know, every single huge event that's happened in history at some point, up and even up until this very day, there is some sort of coin that commemorates it that it's a collectible that you can get. And uh, there used to be Krugerrand coins. I think there still are. There still are these gold Krugerrand coins that were mined in South Africa. And they were controversial uh, because they were mined in South Africa and they were collectible. And uh, there was a lot of controversy about the people who had to mine the gold or mine the material for these coins. And they were most, mostly South African they, or they were, they were African laborers. Um, and so it's still to this point a very you know, controversial thing. So SNL decided they were going to take that on. So this is a commercial. I'm, I'm going to let Harry Shearer. Harry Shearer is the spokesman. It's a, it's a very quick commercial, and he is a spokesman and a pitchman for a new Krugerrand type collectible gold coin. Um, and I'll I'll explain a little bit more. I'm just I'm not going to say it, but this is the gold coin commercial that they did. This is right after Rodney walked off stage. This is the first bit with Harry Shearer being a representative for a company selling this specific gold coin. Now, for the person who is wise enough to recognize the world's finest investment and secure enough not to have to apologize for it, the South African Gold Board introduces a distinguished new gold coin, the Niggerand. <laughs> this one ounce, 99.9% .9 fine gold coin commemorates the labor of those who made it possible with this beautifully etched portrait of an actual African minesman. On the reverse, a beautifully etched map of the areas where, by law, these workers are allowed to live. You'll okay, so... <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, the point of the sketch is satirical, and it's pointed, and it means well. Like, there, it's, it, there was talk of... You know these Krugerrand uh, coins from South uh, from South Africa as investments for you know white people, um, 
and and it is it's a pointed piece of satire. But man, uh, at watching it now, I was like, holy crap! I can't believe they got away with that. So anyway, uh, so that was the first thing right out of the gate. There's your commercial. Next, uh, they go into Doctor Shockley's house of sperm. So they go from the Krugerand. I'm not going to say what Harry said a uh, bit to um, Dr. Shockley's House of Sperm, where stuff like Jizz World and Jelly Barn are thrown around. Um, and it's essentially, uh, it's, it's, there's, there's a, a, a House of Sperm where you can go and you could get sperm of famous people so that you can have talented, you know, great babies. So that's what it's about. You can go in and you can get sperm. And this is about how Rodney Dangerfield, who plays himself in this sketch, is the most coveted, and most popular sperm. Everybody wants to have a kid. You know, everybody wants to have Rodney's kid because they want their kids to be like Rodney. They want him to be funny. And he is outselling every other possible celebrity and politician. And this place, Dr. Shockley's House of Sperm, uh, where this sketch takes place, has a ton of celebrities and politicians and great people, but Rodney is outselling everybody. And that's what the sketch is about. It features Gilda Radner and Bill Murray. Bill Murray, you'll hear a lot. Lorraine Newman plays a nurse. Rodney plays himself. Uh, at one point, Garrett Morris comes in with a woman uh, who doesn't get any credit here. Her name is Yvonne Hudson. Yvonne Hudson was a person who worked behind the scenes. She was a crew member on a bunch of TV shows and stuff. And she appeared during season five a few times on uh, on screen in background and had a few lines here or there. But uh, that's Yvonne Hudson who you'll hear. And she, she comes in. And all these people are seeking Rodney's sperm. Uh, Paul Schaefer uh, also comes in at one point, too. Um, so here's the idea. The idea is that Rodney's like, oh, I can't, uh, I can't give you any more of my sperm. I'm going to run out because he's in such demand. So this is Dr. Shockley's house of sperm. Um, here's a little bit of that. Man, that sounds a little risky to me, man. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, since you don't have no brother, who is that, uh, white dude, baby? You know, the one that don't get oh, no Rodney, respect? Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. You got him? Uh, well. Now, wait a minute. That's what we've been waiting for, Rodney we were, Dangerfield. We were here well, first. Now, please, please, let's not get excited. There'll be plenty of Rodney Dangerfield to go around. Let me, uh, I'll check on that right now. I'll be... Hey, is there any way to turn the lights out in here? Uh, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Dangerfield, building regulations. Oh. How you doing in there, Rodney? Hey, give me a break. We just flew a few more minutes, okay? I'm uh, doing the best I can. Rodney, I hate to reorder again, but could you? Oh, it is impossible. You kidding? I can't. No way. No way. You kidding? It can't be done. But, Rodney, this is very important. These are our first black customers. I'm telling you, you're going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. I'm telling you that right now, you know? All right, okay. Well, thanks, Rodney, for trying. Mr. Dangerfield, would it help if I played a little music? How about a bolero? Well, we've been waiting here for at least 20 minutes, have Yes, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, we're going to, please, uh, you know, don't, you no, it's coming, please. It won't be long. Can I help you, sir? Yes, uh, we were wondering if you might by any chance have some Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, yes, well, Yeah, how come he goes first? Yeah. Yes, uh, now, we called yesterday. There's a Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, Rodney Dangerfield. Now, ladies. Please, please. Oh, I'm going to see what I can do, but please, I'm, I, I'll, I'll try to get the danger wheel for you. You must understand. Uh, please, Rodney, Rodney, I hate to ask you this, but <laughs> could you, Rod? No, I can't. I can't. Forget about it. I can't. I can't. I can't. Rodney, wake up. You're Forget about it. I can't. I can't. Dreaming. Oh, thank God. Thank Aww. God. <laughs> now, let's turn out the lights and give me a kiss. All right, so that so the whole premise was he at the end you find out that Rodney's been dreaming, having a nightmare that everybody wants his sperm. Uh, and by the way, uh, when Tom Davis comes in and says that he wants Rodney's sperm, he's dressed in a Nazi uniform, full swastikas, the whole, the whole thing. So they start out with the Krugerrand uh, thing, and then they do a bunch of like really sort of weird, tasteless sperm humor, which I thought was funny. And Tom Davis is in a full, uh, and Tom Davis and his partner, uh, his wife, are in full Nazi regalia. Uh, so there you go. And then it all turns out to be a joke. He's in bed with his wife, curlers in her hair, played by Jane Curtin. And uh, so there it is. So, <laughs> uh, and it's, there's random stuff in there, like Yvonne Hudson, um, you know, coming in and having a few lines with uh, with Garrett Morris. And there's like political comedy in there as well. Um, so, all right. So, so there's your second sketch right there. Uh, and then Jay Giles comes out and plays Love Stinks. 
and they were great. All right. And then Weekend Update. And, and now as, as we go through these episodes, back in the day, Weekend Update was even longer than it is now. And, and, you know, Weekend Update is the centerpiece of every episode of Saturday Night Live, even to this day. Um, and it's usually the longest stretch of comedy where, you know, they'll do news humor. And the Weekend Update is kind of like a separate uh, segment of the show you know, a, a satire of, a, of, of, of news, of a news show with your correspondence and with your special guests and with, you know, like new cast members coming in and doing their thing. And it's long now. It's, even, it's, the, it's the longest centerpiece of the show today. But it was even longer back then. And one of the other observations about this episode that we're talking about, about the Rodney episode that we're talking about here, is back in, the, in those days, um, in the first few seasons, sketches went long. Um, they went much longer. Like that, that, that uh, uh, Dr. Shockley's House of Sperm sketch, that, that sketch was like six and a half minutes long, almost seven minutes. Now, five minutes is usually tops for a sketch. If you go five minutes, that's a little bit long. You know, Six minutes is really pushing it. And some every once in a while, they will go maybe six, six and a half minutes, and that's it. But back in the day, sketches would go much longer. Um, and Dr. Shockley's House of Sperm was a long sketch. There are a lot of long sketches, and Update went long. This was when Bill Murray and Jane Curtin were the uh, anchors on it. Uh, the jokes were Nixon jokes. They did Carter jokes. At this time, the hostages were, uh, were still in Iran, and that was the, they did Iran jokes. They did hostage jokes. They did Kissinger jokes. They did Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali was fighting at that time, and he was completely out of shape, and he was kind of fat, and they were doing Muhammad Ali fat jokes. Uh, at that. And then Bill Murray's Celebrity Corner uh, was featured here. And uh, this one had a cele- they had two celebrities, uh, actual celebrities. It wasn't people like playing celebrities, but these were the real guys. They had uh, Tony Dow and Jerry Mathers from uh, Leave It to Beaver on. And at that time, there was this weird rumor that got spread. Hey, even before the internet, weird rumors got spread that Jerry Mathers was in fact killed in Vietnam. And they, they had a tendency to take, you know, uh, celebrities of that era in the 50s and things like that, late 50s, and say that they went to Nam and they got killed. And so there was, the, there was that rumor. And here's the bit where Bill Murray did his Celebrity Corner, which was a regular thing when Bill Murray was the co-anchor uh, doing his shtick. And uh, here, from, from the episode, here is the actual uh, uh, appearance by uh, Beaver and, uh, and his brother Wallace. Hey, you silly nuts. Remember these two guys? We grew up with them. You want a hint? They're June and Ward's kids, Lumpy Rutherford's neighbor, Eddie Haskell and Larry Mondello's best friends. Now do you know? Sure you do. They're Wally and Beaver Cleaver, which brings us to tonight's Celebrity Corner. Now you're way ahead of me. It took a bit of doing, but here they are, all grown up from their dressing room at the Westchester County uh, Dinner Theater, where they're appearing at. Let's meet Tony Dow and Jerry Mathers. Nice to have you here, guys. Thanks, Phil. Uh, hey, Beeve, now we all heard that you got killed in Vietnam. Is it true? Well, I... Hey, you little squirt. What did you go and tell everybody that for? <laughs> well, well, gee, Tony, it was on account of the show was off the air, and I figured that nobody knew who we were or cared about us, and I thought maybe I'd just get us some attention. Wow, when Dad hears about this, he's going to go away. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't slug you or something. Well, Jerry, what you've done is a real serious thing, and I think you should apologize. Gee, Bill, do I really have to do that? If I apologize in front of everybody, I'll look like a creep. Yeah, yeah, Bill, don't make Jerry apologize. I mean, I know he's a squirt, but he, he still doesn't want to look like a little goof. Well, young man, maybe next time you'll think about what you're doing and the consequences that follow. Hey, Bill, I was thinking, when you were a kid, did you get well, in trouble and mess things up and stuff? Well, Jerry, I guess all of us at one time or another have messed up, but... The important thing is that we learn from our mistakes. Hey, you're, uh, you're not going to make him go up to his room, are you? I mean, uh, he won't go around spreading rumors again, honest. Well, we'll discuss this when you get home. I'll speak to you later. Thanks, Bill. All right, break a leg. <laughs> Certainly nice to have him on Celebrity Corner, huh, Jane? Bill, you don't think you were too hard on the boys, do you? No, Jane, I, the boys have got to learn something. And I, I don't think we'll ever hear that rumor about Beaver getting killed in Vietnam again either, huh? <laughs> By the way, and when he says that, he looks at the camera like, man, that bit just bombed. That's kind of like Bill Murray's bit. 
Uh, so that was kind of, uh, you know, like it was interesting to have these two guys doing the, you know, their, their leave it the beaver shtick. It was funny. It was Bill Murray's celebrity corner. And then, uh, the next segment of update, which I'm not going to play was Guido Sarducci coming on doing like a full three minutes about, uh, nationality changing operations. So it's about, this was about the Mexican border and uh, people coming through the Mexican border, even back in 1980, this was, uh, this was a joke thing. Uh, thing to 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 to, to satirize, and uh, he had a, a a guy on who had a nationality change, um, and this went on forever. And this is again, this was even when I was fifteen when I watched this episode. Of, no, I was fourteen when I saw this episode. Even at this point, I'm like, man, I'm done with Guido Sarducci, and they put him, they plugged him in to every single episode because, like I said earlier, he was an actual cast member. So Guido Sarducci does this really tired nationality uh, uh, change. Uh, you can have you go in and have a nationality uh, change operation. Um, instead of a sex change operation. Uh, so anyway, so uh, Guido Sardici, and then they closed out Weekend Update, and it was, uh, it was fine. Now, the next sketch, um, when this sketch, or I'm sorry, when this episode aired in March of 1980, Woody Allen's Manhattan was in theaters and was being critically acclaimed, and everybody loved it, and everybody was talking about how Woody, you know, he'd won the Academy Award a couple of years earlier uh, for Annie Hall and all this other stuff, and he was a darling, and also, you know, obviously a stand-up god, and all this other stuff. Um, I've never been a fan of Woody Allen, by the way. Uh, so anyway, so Manhattan was out, and obviously Manhattan very, very famously shot in black and white. It's a love letter to New York City, um, the, the George Gershwin music, and the obvious plot is that Woody Allen, uh, it's, it's about re- the relationships of these you know, well-to-do pseudo-intellectuals or intellectuals in New York who happen to be very, very white, um, and about Woody Allen in particular being a middle-aged guy who's having an, you know, an affair with like an 18-year-old girl played by Mariel Hemingway, and then how he also has an, an, a, an affair with uh, Diane Keaton's character, and his ex-wife is played by Meryl Streep. And it's all about this, you know, the Woody Allen shtick, the Woody Allen shit that gets done and recycled over and 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 over, and over again ad nauseum in all of his goddamn movies. So middle-aged guy, oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, I'm brilliant. Nobody understands me. I'm funny. Nobody thinks I'm funny. And women, I have trouble with women, especially younger women. And Manhattan was a love letter to that. And so, but the, the central focus of this, this sketch that they did was called Manhasset which is a place in Long Island. They shot it in black and white. They did a whole opening intro with the Gershwin music. It's a satire of Manhattan with Roddy Dangerfield playing the Woody Allen character, a variation of the Woody Allen character. Lorraine Newman playing the uh, Mariel Hemingway character, except that in this, she's dressed in a Girl Scout uniform and she's 10 years old. Uh, <laughs> Bill Murray plays the Tony Roberts part. Uh, Gilda Radner plays the, Mike, uh, the, uh, uh, the Diane Keaton role. Now, uh, it starts out with a series, a montage in black and white with a voiceover of Rodney doing the kind of voiceover stuff that Woody Allen does in Manhattan, and it goes on forever. So let me just say this. It's, at this time, it was very timely, especially for intellectual comedy, because at that time, you know, the intellectual comedy uh, scene, they were all, you know, going crazy over how brilliant Woody Allen was. So it was a timely satire, um, and it was done in black and white. And it made sense to do this. But the thing is, this sketch lasted almost 14 minutes, which is astonishing, which is jaw-dropping. It lasted 14 minutes where they tried to recreate specific scenes from Manhattan, and they did it for 14 minutes. Like one scene takes place in a restaurant, the scene we'll hear takes place in a restaurant, and then there's bedrooms and there's people walking down the street. They tried to take all of the sort of uh, iconic or very popular at the time scenes or sequences from Manhattan and, you know, satirize them uh, with, uh, you know, Gilda Radner doing a Diane Keaton impersonation, uh, Bill Murray doing a Tony Roberts impersonation, and so on and so forth. And, and, and again, Lorraine Newman playing a 10-year-old. So that's the joke. All right. So here, this is from Manhasset, which is, again, a satire of Manhattan. And again, keep in mind, this is an almost 14-minute sketch. Here's a little section of it, just to show you how far they went with the material. It's unbelievable, kind of. Finish your soup, Tracy. It's good for you. I love watching this kid eat, you know? I love watching her do anything. You're real beautiful, Tracy. I guess I'm just a sucker for a girl in uniform, you know? Thanks, Mr. Davis. Rodney, you can call me Rodney. Okay, Rodney. 
May I please be excused? I have to go to the girls' room. Sure, Tracy. She's gorgeous. Yeah. She's 10 and I'm 58. <laughs> when she reaches her sexual peak, I've been dead five years. Well, she may be 10, but she's a perfect 10. <laughs> Aren't you two making too much of this age thing? I mean, you know, come on. I mean, everything is relative, okay? You know, I mean, am I right? Am I right? Right? I mean, you know, you know, right? Look, Mary, yeah. It's okay for you two to have an affair. I mean, you're, you're consenting adults. But this is different. Tracy's just a kid. And when I try to get her into bed, she starts crying, wants to stay up another half hour. Oh, 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 gosh. Oh, golly, I can't believe it. It's 5 o'clock. I thought it was 4.30 and it's 5 o'clock. How come I didn't know it was, four, it was 5 o'clock? What's the matter? Well, I have my Chinese cooking class. I, I, mean, I mean, I'm supposed to be there right now. I mean, right this minute, I'm supposed to be there. So, oh, Mary, Mary, how could you do that? I can't believe that I was supposed to be there. Now I'm not there. I better get going, too, Ronnie. I got okay. some turn papers to correct, and I got to finish that novel. All right. I'll talk Bye. to you later, huh? How could All I make right. a mistake like that? Take care, Mary Ann. Take right. care. Bye-bye. Finished. Oh, good girl, Tracy. Mr. Davis, I really like you. I think we have a lot in common. We like the same movies and we read the same books and we have great, you know what? Keep it down, all right? <laughs> What's the matter? Don't you like me? Sure, but I just don't want you to grow up and get too hung up on me. A pretty young girl like you should be going out with lots of old dirty men. Oh. Now finish your soup. The Muppet movie starts in 20 minutes. Okay, Rodney. Okay, so that's... Uh, so, by the way, that goes on for another 11 minutes. Um, so you get the idea. They're, they're doing a satire of, uh, of, you know, of Woody Allen and, uh, and the intellectual. And I get it. I mean, you know, the, the, the joke was, oh, Woody Allen's dating a girl that's like 30 years younger than he is, so we're going to take it to the extreme. We're going to make Rodney even older, and we're going to make her even younger and make her 10. <laughs> and I understand that, and uh, and you know I appreciate Gilda Radner trying to do uh, Diane Keaton, but it's not very good. Um, and it, again, it goes on for eleven minutes. I and also uh, going back, that's the third joke about the movie Ten that was made in the sketches uh, that we've uh, here heard. Uh, by the way, at that time, uh, Bo Derek in Ten was like number one at the box office, and she was the hottest thing in the world. And everybody was you know now referring to women as tens or nines or eights or whatever. So that's why there are uh, a bunch of 10 jokes in that. So anyway, uh, goes on for over almost 14 minutes. Uh, again, material where you go, like he sleep. There's jokes about him sleeping with a 10 year old, um, played by Lorraine Newman. Um, so again, the material edgy, weird, and now doesn't sit right. And also wasn't very funny. Um, as was most of this episode, uh, rewatching it. Now the sketches go on too long. The material, um, is edgy but not funny enough and has not aged well at all. This episode has not aged well. So uh, a 14-minute black-and-white satire of Manhattan goes on forever, which includes jokes about a 58-year-old having sex with a 10-year-old. Okay, let's move on, shall we? All right. The next is a much more straightforward sketch. I'll just fly through this one. It's called The Road to Moscow, and it was a television, a satire of a television special. Now, the Olympics were coming up. The Summer Olympics were coming up, and uh, USA uh, uh, famously boycotted, boycotted the Olympics because of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, and they did not participate in the Summer Olympics, even after a, a, a remarkable Winter Olympics, which, of course, the story of the Winter Olympics at that point was the, the, the incredible uh, performance by the U.S. hockey team. But all this, this was in March of 1980, and the talk was, are we going to boycott um, and have these... Um, you know, athletes wasted all their time in these years training for this. It's not going to happen. Uh, so that, um, so the, so, so that was the sketch. And the sketch was uh, Harry Shearer played Kurt Gowdy and Bill Murray, Lorraine Newman, and Garrett Morris were all athletes who were facing the boycott. Uh, again, this sketch goes on way too long. Um, the joke of the joke was that these athletes are now out of shape. Like Lorraine Newman is smoking the whole time on stage. Uh, Garrett Morris and Bill Murray are talking about their drinking and all kinds of stuff. So they're completely out of shape. And the whole sketch is that we're screwing over the American athletes by boycotting the Olympics. And Harry Shearer got to do a not very good Kurt Gowdy. 
So, okay. So the road to Moscow, which was a, a parody of a, of a sports TV show, uh, targeting the, the boycott, the future boycott. Uh, and then there was this little bit, um, this was the 99th episode of Saturday Night Live, the one that we're talking about right now. So here's Gilda Radner and Jane Curtin in bathrobes in between costume changes. And here's, uh, here's them talking about next week's show. I just wanted to play this because I thought it was, it was kind of lovely, and it's, it's a little bit funny. And it, and it was a preview for the big 100th episode, the following. Next week, March 15th, we celebrate the 100th year of Saturday Night Live. It seems like just yesterday... That's the 100th show, not the 100th That's year. That's right. And to help us celebrate, we have the most exciting lineup of hosts. It's a surprise. We're not supposed to tell. Oh, I know that. So be there next week when Saturday Night Live celebrates its first 100 years. We'll have Paul Simon, James Taylor, Ralph Nader, Mayor You're not Cashin. supposed to tell, Jim. See you then. See you then. I don't know. I just wanted to play that because it was, it was Jane and Gilda, and it was fun. And uh, I will be talking about the 100th episode. That'll be coming up. That'll be uh, coming up on uh, That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years in the future. But I just wanted to play that. That was a little promo they did right in the middle of the show. Okay, back to the sketches. And this is kind of the centerpiece sketch of the show. Uh, it was late in the show. It wasn't the 1250, but it was, it was, it was pretty late in the show. Um, and this is the substitute judge sketch, which a lot of people have gone back and watched. Again, a very long sketch. This thing, is, this thing clocks in at seven and a half minutes. And that was, I guess, you know, uh, kind of, you know, more acceptable then was to do these very long sketches. And, and again, let me just point this out. This is at seven. This is over seven minutes long. And it's half the running time of the Manhattan parody with the jokes about having sex with a 10 year old. So this is a, a little bit longer. And it is uh, it's a it's the the concept is very funny. Um, and uh, it goes on a little bit too long. But it's basically about how uh, they're in a courtroom. And the judge that comes in, played by Brian Doyle Murray, is a substitute judge. Like, the real judge can't be there. And it's about how the defendant, the prosecutors, the jury, the people in the courtroom, they're all acting like students act, like little jerk students act when there's a substitute teacher. So it's just the class is acting up. They're giving the student teacher or the, the, you know, the substitute teacher a hard time. Um, and that's the whole idea. The idea is they take the, the behavior of bratty, jerk you know, uh, students and uh, how they behave with a substitute teacher. And they do that with a substitute judge. And this has got like a ton of people in it. Brian Doyle Murray plays the judge. Uh, he plays Judge Crotch uh, in it. Garrett Morris is the, is the bailiff. Uh, Bill Murray is in this. Uh, Lorraine Newman. Um, and then Harry Shearer comes in as, a re- as the judge next door. You know, you know how when a, when, when a real teacher has to come in and, uh, and take over the class when a substitute teacher is being, you know, abused by their students. Uh, and then there is a, there's also a, uh, Yvonne Hudson is in this too. This is her second sketch of the night. Um, and so basically it's, it's got a bunch of people in it. It goes on for seven minutes and it's just every joke you can possibly do about, you know, uh, a courtroom pretending to be kids messing around with their substitute teacher. That's what this thing is about. So here's a little bit of the substitute judge. My goodness. Now, where is this defendant, uh... Mr. Richard Hertz. His, uh, his name is Dick, Your Honor. All right, who's Dick Hertz? <laughs> oh, right here, Judge. That's not for you. You just go. We don't need you here. You just go. <laughs> wait, wait, Your Honor, he's the defendant. Oh, well, then we do need you. You better sit down. Where were you anyway, Bailey? Your Honor, I was emptying the waste basket. Do you have an older brother who's a bailiff? Yes, Your Honor. Yeah, I remember him. He was in a fine night court. Bailiff. Yeah, a fine bailiff in night court. I hope you're as good. Now, Mr. Hertz, is this the first time you've been up before me? I don't know. What time do you usually get up? <laughs> sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Now, perhaps the court reporter would please refresh our memory uh, and tell us what were the last words of yesterday's proceedings. Uh, court dismissed until 10 a.m. tomorrow. I mean, before it happens. Yes, Your Honor. Um, the defense stated that the prosecution hadn't produced a murder weapon or a motive, and the prosecution said, so what? I bet he did it anyway. What is going on in here? 
You're disrupting my courtroom next door. Where is Judge Hoffmeyer? Uh, Judge Hoffmeyer is sick, and I'm substituting. Well, I want the names of each and every one of these people. I'm going to make sure the regular judge is informed of this. And if I hear one more peep out of this courtroom, I'm going to come back in here, and I'll administer some justice. Thank you. I'm shaking. I'm shaking. Well, I hope you're all happy. Now, shall we get on with this trial? All right, so that's that, that. That's the basic idea. You get it, and uh, and it goes on for over seven minutes. Uh, it's a it's a funny sketch. It's just too long. And now the big tidbit about this sketch. Um, again, this is March eighth, nineteen eighty. In the background, a background player who plays one of the jurors is a guy that would go on to uh, some fame and uh, and about fifteen minutes of, of of fortune and fame, and an actor named Rob Morrow who would appear on Northern Exposure. That was his big thing. He would appear in other things and in movies, and he was in Mother, the um, uh, the Albert Brooks comedy. Uh, I've never been a fan of Rob Morrow. I've always found him uh, absolutely. An- he was in Quiz Show, and he was it, and he almost single-handedly ruined quiz show for me. I can't stand the guy. Um, uh, so Rob Morrow is in that sketch. So this was years before any success he ever had uh, in the early 90s or the late 80s. So this is like 10 years, 12 years before he became a success. And there he is in the background. It's Rob Morrow in the background. Um, and you can see him. He's, you know, he's in a lot of the shots. He doesn't have any lines, but he's there and he's interacting with a lot of the people that are in the sketch. And yeah, it's a young Rob Morrow star, future star of Northern Exposure, and future nobody remembers who Rob Morrow is. <laughs> so, but he did mention it. Rob Morrow, believe it or not, Rob Morrow hosted. There was a time when Rob Morrow was famous enough to host Saturday Night Live, and he did so on January eleventh, nineteen ninety-two. Uh, Nirvana, by the way, that was their first time um, uh, as a musical guest. So, a lot of people watched this episode and have gone back and watched it again simply because Nirvana was the musical guest. And then, unfortunately, you had to put up with Rob Morrow as your host. This was season 17 and episode 10. And in his monologue, when Rob Morrow came out, he talked about the substitute judge sketch. So here's Rob Morrow on January 11, 1992, talking about him being a background player. And he'll be referring to the video. And they show him in the background. And they circle, they circle his head as, so that you can point him out. But here's Rob Morrow during his monologue in 1992 talking about Thank that. You. Wow. I'm sure, um, I'm sure most of you are thinking the reason I'm hosting the show is because I'm on Northern Exposure, and, well, this is, this is true. It's been getting a lot of press, and, well, there's a, just a little more to it than that. Um, see, I'm going to let you in on a, on a bit of a secret. I've actually done the show before. Yeah, it's a, it's a simple case of, I mean, I guess they liked what I did, and, well, they asked me back. I made my first appearance. It was uh, 1980. I was in a classic piece called The Substitute Judge. It was, uh, let's see, it was me and Gilda. It was Jane, Garrett, Billy Murray. Oh, and Rodney Dangerfield was actually the defendant. I wonder if we could, hey, Davey, you think we could uh, roll that clip? I mean, I, I saw it, they have it. Yeah, right, okay, there's Garrett Morris. And let's see, all right, there's Rodney. And wait, there's me, right there, wait, stop the tape. Yep, right there, there we go. That's me. back memories so many memories i mean there i was right i'm a struggling young actor just moved to new york i come to saturday night live to audition for the part of juror number 12. And i guess I, I did pretty well because right away and i mean like right away i was recasting the role of juror number 11. and this is a real break for a young actor okay this is a major break juror number 11 i get the chance to do some ensemble work with billy and lorraine now these are given actors i gotta tell you this is a young actor's dream well, for a while, I thought they had forgotten about the work I'd done on the show, but uh, sure enough, 12 years later, the phone rings, and here I am. So it's an interesting little tidbit. Uh, the really annoying guy from Northern Exposure who had 15 minutes of fame is a, uh, <laughs> is a juror in the background of the substitute judge set. So if you go back and watch the Rodney episode from 1980, that's Rob Morrow in there uh, who would go on to annoy a lot of people. Uh, especially me. Okay, after the substitute judge sketch, which again is really funny but too long, Jay Giles comes back for their second performance and they perform Sanctuary. Fantastic. By the way, Jay Giles kicked ass. Their two performances were uh, highlights of the show and they didn't go on for eight minutes. Okay, the final sketch, the 1250 sketch, is a satire of America on the job um, and, and the people who test products. 
And in this one, it's about, it's about a bunch of shirt inspectors. And this was the very last sketch. And I play this sketch because I want to uh, play an example of what Peter Aykroyd actually did on the show. Peter Aykroyd, Danny Aykroyd's younger brother, who kind of, uh, they, they stuck in there because his last name was Aykroyd. Uh, in this sketch, Gilda Radner plays a woman who brings out a bunch of shirts to a factory. And Rodney Dangerfield, Garrett Morris, and Bill Murray are these guys who are on an assembly line trying on shirts and testing them out. Uh, for the American public to make sure that the shirts are rugged and that they will stand up to whatever Americans can do to these shirts. So it's an America on the job satire, but I'm playing this back because I want you to listen. Peter Aykroyd appears as, doing the voiceover and then on screen uh, as the on-screen guide, he walks through the factory and there he is. But this is essentially uh, what Peter Aykroyd did while he was on SNL. The, the idea was his last name is Aykroyd and people will go, oh, he's, he's, an, he's an Aykroyd. So listen, I just want you to listen to Peter Aykroyd's voice as doing the voiceover at the beginning and then appearing on screen as your guide through this factory. Just really concentrate and listen to Peter Aykroyd's voice and to pretty much why he was a cast member on SNL for a very short period of time. But listen to the voice that Peter Aykroyd uh, is doing here on this Shirt Inspector sketch. Part of what has made America so great is its constant demand for excellence. And only through the highest standards of workmanship, quality, and rigorous testing do we achieve this perfection in our manufactured goods. From textiles to automobiles, cleansers to airline food, nothing in this country escapes close inspection and rigorous testing. Tonight, on America on the Job, we would like to salute the men and women who inspect our shirts, a rare and talented breed. and no shirt leaves the factory uninspected. Cuff shooting is used to check friction, cuff drag, and overall stability. The shirts are tucked and retucked to check slippage, length, and general fit. And finally, the colors are checked to check stiffness and proper authority. Yes. Only then does the inspection number tag go in as a symbol of the shirt's fine quality. So the next time you put a shirt on, remember, it's been quality checked by men who know their jobs. Shirt inspectors of America, we salute you and we thank you. This has been a public service message brought to you by the American Garment Inspectors Association. All right. So clearly um, trying <laughs> very much to sound exactly like his brother, which is kind of what he did in every sketch that he was ever in when he was on SNL. But that is the most sort of blatant example of Peter Aykroyd clearly doing as close to you can possibly an, a, an impersonation of Dan Aykroyd that you can possibly do. I mean, all the way down to the way he was saying the lines. And he stumbled a few times because Peter Aykroyd wasn't very good. And uh, by the way, the shirt inspector sketch, uh, Rodney, of course, was the guy who was checking the collars. See, get it? Because he was, uh, he was like, oh, I'll tell you, I don't get respect. He was checking his collar. So, uh, a, you know, kind of a funny bit. Uh, Bill Murray and, and, and Garrett Morris and Rodney Dangerfield doing some funny physical stuff. But I played that essentially to show you what Peter Aykroyd's role was as a cast member for a brief time on Saturday Night Live, and that was to desperately try to be his brother. Okay, uh, the good nights, uh, you know, Rodney comes up, hey, thanks, and that's it. And the Jay Giles band pop uh, champagne, and everybody starts drinking. Rodney drinks a bunch of champagne and almost falls down, and everybody is clearly uh, going to have fun and get loaded and do some cocaine and drink. Uh, so that's it. That's the whole episode. It's an interesting episode. It represents a time when sketches went on too long. It represents a time when they were doing satire that was much crazier and edgier. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it was absolutely cringeworthy. But it's a fascinating episode, and it's the only time that Rodney ever hosted. And it's interesting to see it because you watch it because three months later, about a little bit more than three months later, Rodney would become a movie star with Caddyshack. And he would be associated with, you know, Chevy Chase and Bill Murray uh, forever uh, and, you know, and be a comic icon, which he was already. But this was before Caddyshack, um, just a few months uh, before, uh, before he was exposed to even younger people. And it represents a, a pretty important period of time in comedy. And it, and it is, you know, uh, it, it's something that we can look back at, uh, you know, historically, a time capsule moment, if you will. So 
Uh, if you want to check it out, again, it is season five, episode 13, March 8th, 1980, the only time Rodney hosted. Uh, a, a, a weird episode, to say the least, and an episode where uh, they couldn't do a lot of the stuff that they did in it now. So anyway, check it out. All right, we will focus on other episodes and on other sketches and on other things. By the way, I will not be focusing. I will not be doing an episode entirely about the Rob Morrow uh, uh, episode. So just know that going in. All right. Hey, if you want to uh, make a suggestion uh, or leave some feedback, uh, the voicemail lines are open here at 773-417-6948. Your thoughts on SNL, your contributions, your suggestions. Um, and you can reach me uh, also at uh, the email, nickdpodcast at gmail.com, which will reach me here at this podcast and my other podcast, the Nick D Podcast. You can hear this podcast simulcast every day at 9 a.m. Central at radiomisfits.live. You can hear the Nick D Podcast, my other one, Every day at 3 p.m. Central at RadioMisfits.live, which is our 24-hour streaming service. Uh, my thanks to um, Ed uh, and everybody at Radio Misfits. And, of course, Jason Skaggs, who is the genius who composed the opening theme that you hear at the top of this uh, show and uh, this very closing theme. We hope we can join you next time again. 773-417-6948 or nickdpodcast at gmail.com for your feedback and your suggestions. Thanks for listening. I'm Nick DiGilio. We'll see you next time on That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>